as a community, we're on this journey together, right? We're learning together, and uh, we're learning God's Word together. And we're not just learning words off of a page. We're, we're learning uh, what God's Word means and how it's applied in our life. And then how to, how to live that out through various circumstances and situations and, and pandemics and and uprisings and all the stuff that happens in life like as a community we're moving through this stuff together and as we move through this stuff together and as we learn God's word together uh, we develop a vocabulary we develop a theology together you know there is theology books that you can read and and you can and, and I would certainly would encourage you to do that and you can learn theology but real theology is a lived experience and if you really understand the Bible, what you should understand is that theology is meant to be lived and experienced in community. This whole individualization of spirituality really is a modern, a modern invention. The church, as it existed um, when it came into inception, their theology was a lived and a shared experience. Everything about how they experienced God was together. And, and so as a pastor, what I love is over a period of time, us developing a theology together. And in developing that theology, learning how God's word works and what it means to us and, 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 and a vocabulary and expression of that. And, and so together, as we move through these things, there's different themes that come up over and over again. And some time ago, um, on Easter, as a matter of fact, if you recall, uh, we preached from Isaiah 61, and we talked about the year of Jubilee. And then uh, a, a little while later, on June 15th, um, I, I shared a message uh, called The Exchange. And we went back, and we looked at Isaiah 61, and we talked about, we talked about, uh, the exchange that takes place. Um, and we talked about the exchange that took place and this promise uh, that Jesus got up, he read about himself, he quoted from Isaiah 61, and we, we went through that exchange that took place. Well, as, as we shared that message that day, I, you guys you know, move from Sunday to Sunday. So, sometimes it's hard for me to get past some things that God is speaking to us. And, and that Isaiah 61 passage, and in particular those two messages, I haven't been able to get over them. It's just uh, kind of like a, a cow chews its cud. It's just, it's just stayed with me, and I can't get past it. And even though we've done other series since then, um, there's just been something that the Lord is, is doing in me about that whole exchange that takes place. And, and the truth is, is it, it actually begins a couple of years ago. I was in a conversation um, with someone a couple of years ago. And out of the conversation, I feel like the Holy Spirit spoke something to me and taught me um, a, an expression that, that really imprinted on my heart. And I've just been waiting, uh, been waiting over it with the Lord sort of for the right time to talk about it or, or really um, speak about it or write about it or whatever the Lord wants me to do with it. And, and the idea or the concept, if you will, is um, a phrase I, I want to teach you today. It's called attributive dignity. Everyone say attributive dignity. That wasn't everyone. Everyone say attributive dignity. The idea of attributive dignity um, is this idea that 
that all of us have been created in the image of God. We are image bearers. However, as a result of the broken nature of man, that image has been distorted. And we all live in a distortion field, if you will. When I, when I look at you, when I see you, I see you, uh, I should see you as an image bearer in the image of God. But because of the brokenness of man, because of our sin nature, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, all of us are sort of living with this distortion field around us in which we are not fully reflecting and demonstrating the Imago Dei, the image of God. And when you truly understand the work of Christ, why Jesus got up and he said what he said when he quoted from Isaiah 61 and what the prophet Isaiah was saying about Jesus was this idea that we are, we are image bearers and the fullness of the work of Christ is to restore to us to restore to us the image of God in our lives. In other words, that all of us would come to that place, that whole exchange that we talked about. And if you weren't here on June the 15th, I would encourage you to go download that podcast, that the idea is that the work of Christ really is to restore to us our dignity as children of God. And that theme exists throughout all of Scripture. In fact, over and over and over again, you read stories of God restoring humanity or restoring a person to the place that he always intended them to be as someone who has the dignity or the identity of a child of God. However, for most of us, we're not living in that identity. We are living in our distortion. And the whole process of being a disciple in it, at North Place, we are a disciple-making community. That's what we do. Let's not be confused about why North Place exists. We do a lot of things, but we exist to make disciples. Woo, let me say that again. We may do a lot of things, but we exist to make disciples. That's what Jesus called us to do. And this whole process of disciple making or becoming a disciple really is about this exchange. It's about this exchange that takes place between the distortion and the dignity of being a child of God. So Isaiah 61 is really all about Jesus saying, I've come to make this exchange take place, to exchange the distortion for the dignity. So when we talk about attributive dignity, what we're talking about is the intentional choice and the intentional practice of seeing and treating people as if they are in the image of God. It's the choice that you make to see me, not in my brokenness or my distortion, but to see me as Randy Freeman, child of God. Certainly I'm a sinner. Certainly I've made mistakes. Certainly uh, there are issues in my life. But when you relate to me, when you look at me, the way that you treat me, the way that you talk about me, the things that you assume about me are all through the filter of the fact that I am in the image of God. Attributive dignity is the practice of me continually choosing to treat you and see you as if you are an image bearer, not as if you are broken and distorted. Over the next few weeks, I want to share a series of messages with you um, that I'm going to call, um, I'm, I'm call them beauty for ashes, sort of out of that idea from Isaiah 61. If you remember the first exchange 
that the Messiah was going to make was he was going to give them a crown of beauty for their ashes. I'm not going to go back and re-preach that, that message from June 15th, but that was the first exchange. And it really sort of set the tone for this idea of exactly what God does. He takes and he gives us beauty, a crown of beauty for ashes. He changes, he makes this identity exchange. He literally puts upon us the dignity of royalty as his child. Over the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want to, I want to share a few stories with you from Scripture as examples of when Jesus did this, of when he traded beauty for ashes in a person's life and, and really what that means to us. This morning, I want to take just a couple of minutes and I want us to look at a particular story that, uh, that we find in John chapter 9. And all the book of John... Uh, I, I love the book of John, and if you read the kind of the, the, the chapters sort of leading up to chapter 9, what you see is there's, this, there's, there's a theme, and we know when we study the Bible, you, you should look for repeated phrases or concepts because that gives you an indication or a clue as to what it's really about. So when we study our Bible, when you're doing your daily 20, that's one of the things that you want to do. And so when you are reading that John chapter 6, 7, and 8, and into chapter 9, you kind of see this, this motif, if you will, of this light versus darkness. And Jesus even made this expression about himself that he's the light of the world. And there's this whole back and forth, and there's these different episodes, but all of them kind of come back to this idea of light, the ability to be able to see versus the darkness. And so then you get into John chapter 9, and there is this really interesting story that you find there in John chapter 9. Jesus is, is uh, with his disciples, and they come, upon, uh, they come upon a blind man. And they come upon this blind man, and the scripture says, and let me just read it to you, John uh, chapter 9. Uh, verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, I've always been fascinated by this particular passage of Scripture for a lot of reasons. But the first reason that I'm fascinated by it is because the episode begins by Jesus and his disciples apparently seeing this man. It's a very common practice that when someone uh, had some sort of uh, challenge, physical challenge, that they, would, that they would beg as a way of, of making a living, that this was their, their means. He couldn't work because he was blind. And, and so they see him. And it's fascinating, the disciples' question to Jesus, they said, whose fault is it? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Why was he, why was he born blind? Why did they ask that question? Think about it for a moment. You walk up on a man who's blind, he's begging He can't work. 
His life is destitute. And the first question is not, hey, Jesus, you know, you fed a lot of people and I've seen you heal other people and I've seen you do all these other wonderful miracles. Hey, Jesus, do you think you could help this guy out? They didn't say that. They said, whose fault is it? There's something about the human mind, the human condition. We need, we need to know why. And we need to know whose fault it is. We need, a, we need a resolution. We need someone to blame, right? And in their theology, in their mindset, in their worldview, if this guy was blind from birth, it had to be somebody's fault. And so they wanted to know whose fault was it. Was it his fault or was it his parents' fault? I don't know about you, it's so easy for me to read the Bible and really, you know, come up with a lot of reasons to make fun of the disciples. Man, these guys were knuckleheads. They did some, they, they did and said some crazy things. But, but in my most honest moments, I wonder how often I'm just like that. When I see someone who's struggling... When I see someone who's broken, when I hear about a marriage that's falling apart, a business that was lost, I think to myself, well, what'd they do wrong? What did she do wrong this time? What did, oh, you know, you know it was because her mama did this and behaved like that and taught her to dress that way. That's why she got raped. Oh, well, you know, he only comes to church once a month. No wonder his business fell apart. Hello? You want me to get back on the plane? (laughs) Whose fault is it? Why did this happen? It has to be somebody's fault. There's got to be somebody to blame. Rather than compassionately responding to the man's need, rather than be worried about how to restore him, they wanted to know why it was that way. They wanted to judge him. Their theology wanted to classify him and put him in a box of somebody that was broken. They had to be better. We have to be better than them. See, if I don't, if I don't do these things, then that's not going to happen to me. If I, if I dress this way... Then, then that's not going to happen to me. And we put ourselves in these little religious and theological cocoons because we've created a philosophy and a theology that is not based on the complete testimony of truth and scripture and God's word, but is based on our own need to promote ourselves above others, to protect ourselves, to have a God that we can understand and control. See, that's the whole problem with humanity. From the beginning, we always wanted a God who followed our rules. Because if I know what God wants and I do all the things that he wants, then no calamity must ever happen to me. Pastor, I don't understand. I pay my tithe. Why am I going through financial difficulty? I'm following the rules. So so the Bible says that if I pay my tithes, God's obligated to bless me. I'm sorry you've received false teaching. That's not what the Bible says. You don't pay your tithes to get God to do something. You pay your tithes because we have have been commanded to in Scripture. 
But doesn't the Bible say if I do this, and he's going to open the windows of heaven and yada, 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 yada. Absolutely, it says that. But again, you're computing that all in the economy of man, not the economy of the kingdom. Why did this happen? Was it his parents' fault? Was it his fault? Jesus does something. He says something that blows up their whole world, their whole theology. He says, neither. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. In fact, let me show you. Here's what's going to happen. He is going to be a trophy, a demonstration of the power and the glory of God. See, some of us have been living with condemnation and guilt and grief because we have embraced false doctrine and theology that has put upon us the weight. Everything that has ever gone wrong in our life, we have put on the weight as if it must be my fault or my parents' fault or somebody else's fault. Is it possible that life has happened and in the middle of life happening, God wants to step into your circumstance and your situation and say, now let me show you my glory. Let me demonstrate in your life how I'm going to make something out of nothing. Because, oh, by the way, that's the kind of God that I am. We always want something from something. It only adds up if something equals something. So it had to be somebody's sin that equals brokenness. But God says, no, it's not always that way. Yes, brokenness has happened. Humanity has fallen in the Garden of Eden. But it didn't have anything to do with this man's individual sin or his parents' individual sin. It had to do with God being a God who takes nothing and he makes something out of it. Many of us can't move past our brokenness into our blessing because we're waiting on our explanation. We got to know why. It's unfair. This happened to me. It's unfair. This happened to this person. And we can't move past that moment of needing to know why to move into the moment of blessing that God is trying to provide for us where he demonstrates and shows his glory in our life. And then get this, Jesus, I don't know why he did this. I don't understand why he did this. But he reached down and he spit in the dirt and he made a mud pie and he put it in the guy's eye. I mean, as if the dude had not been humiliated enough to live his entire life blind. Jesus makes a mud pie and puts it in his eye and says, now go and wash. I know you love me, but if I went outside and grabbed a hunk of dirt and said, now everybody come forward who needs prayer today and started smearing it on you, some of you would be gone faster. This guy's crazy. I don't want any part of this. I wonder how many of us I wonder how many of us are missing our blessing because our blessing isn't coming in a way that's acceptable to us. It's muddy and it's dirty and it doesn't make sense. And why? Why? Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to get mud in my eye? Why do I have to experience this? And we're not moving into our blessing. We're certainly not moving into the place that's beautiful. Because we don't understand the ashes. 
We've embraced an identity that says this is who I am, this is what I am, and until God tells me why, I'm not moving from here. I wonder how many of us in the body of Christ, I wonder how many of us in the church or the church itself misses out on really, really seeing restoration in people's lives because when they walk into the door broken, instead of responding to them and seeing them, we see their brokenness. And we start trying to fix their brokenness. We diagnose them. Because that's what we do, right? Oh, we're all good at diagnosing. I mean, we've all become healthcare professionals. Just get online. We all know why the virus happens, the best way around it. You're not ready to laugh about that yet, right? <laughs> we're all super good at diagnosing stuff. Problem is, we can't fix anything. <laughs> they weren't even, they weren't asking about fixing him. They were asking about diagnosing him. What's the problem? The problem is that he can't see. The problem, if you read 6, 7, 8, 9, here we are in chapter 9, the problem is that the world's in darkness and it needs light. It doesn't need me chasing wires and diagnosing where the electricity problem on. It needs light. And supernaturally, a God who takes nothing and makes something doesn't care about us diagnosing problems. He cares about let there be light. North Place Church, we must be a church that says, let there be light. When I left, I said, we're for the city. What are we doing in that? We're not here to diagnose all the problems in the city. I'm not here to chase every demon under every rock. I don't have time to mess with that. What I've got time for is saying, let there be light. God will take care of every demon under every rock. He'll chase your problems and whose sin is this, that, and the other. I don't have time for gossip. I don't have time for diagnosing what I have time for is seeing people healed and made whole I want you to stand with me all across this place this morning perhaps you came today as Desiree said earlier you've experienced loss Brokenness. In this particular story, the cause of the loss and the brokenness had nothing to do with the sin of the individual or the actions of the activities of the individual. In fact, Jesus really never said who did what. He just said, God's going to use this for his glory. And that's what matters. That's what matters. There's a lot of things in my life that I've spent a lot of time asking why about. <clears throat> and I'm not here to beat you up for asking why. I'm not. It's part of the human experience and condition. You know, it's even interesting. Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, said, my God, my God, Father, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Son, who knew all things, who had already prayed and sweat great drops of blood, who already understood the moment, 
who knew it before the beginning of time, in the moment, in his human pain, said, God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, I'm not here to beat you up for saying why. Jesus himself asked why. Like we said on June 15th, your sorrow, your ashes, your pain, your grief, it was meant for a moment. It was never meant to be your identity. Jesus in the moment said, why? But he had already determined in his heart, not my will, Father, let yours be done. Some of us have beat ourselves up. We've stayed in this place with ashes all over our head or we've allowed other people to heap ashes on us. Today, I believe the Lord wants to give you beauty for ashes. He wants to put a crown on your head. He wants to exchange your identity. He wants to say to you, you are my child. He wants to attribute to you the dignity that already exists because you've been created in his image. And he wants to call us forward as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, to not be those who participate with the accuser of the brethren, always chasing down the sin. But instead, he wants, to, he wants us to participate with the restorer of all things, the redeemer of all things. He wants us to participate in the calling forward, the Imago Dei in every single person. That includes you, friend. Can I ask you to close your eyes for a moment? Father, I thank you for every person that is here. I thank you for the work that you're doing in their lives. I thank you for the work that you're doing in my life. I thank you for what you're teaching me. Thank you for what you're teaching all of us. Lord, I pray for every person that is here today who's in sackcloth and ashes, who's been broken and who's sitting with the question why. Lord, for those of us who are stuck in that place, I ask you now, call us forward into our identity as children of God. And for those of us who are Christians in this place, who have lived with a judgmental, a religious, a negative attitude towards others, more concerned about their brokenness and their sin and the accusation than we are about mercy and grace and restoration. God, I pray right now that you would place within us a new heart that is speaking forward life and life abundantly as Christ creates it in all of us. I ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.